Good morning once again. Good to be together in the house of the Lord this morning and a joy to be gathered for worship. We don't just gather for habit or routine, but this is a time where we meet with the Lord and hear from his word and fellowship with his people. It's irreplaceable. This will never happen again in the same way that it happened this morning. And so what a blessing to be here and to participate together in the worship of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are going to get further into the book of Malachi this morning. We started Malachi a couple of weeks ago. Um, But before we move on into chapter 1, I want to kind of button up something that we talked about last week. And this is one of the things with preaching is you study for hours and hours a week and it becomes an exercise in what not to say in the pulpit (laughs) because there is so much that goes into a sermon. So I just want to go back because after talking with a couple of you, there was one thing that I was kind of debating on if I should touch on or not, and I think it would be helpful if we go back. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to go back to verses 2 to 5 of Malachi chapter 1. We're going to, we're going to kind of button that up, and then we'll move on to verses 6 through 10 this morning and see how far we can get. So before we open our Bibles, before we come, let's pray together and ask that the Lord would be our guide and our helper through his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you thankful now for another opportunity to gather as your people. We are those, Lord, who are, just as Brian said, undeserving of your grace, and yet you have showed kindness and favor to us in bringing us into your family. We are gathered here today not as a bunch of individuals only, but as an expression of your church and the love that you have demonstrated for the bride of Jesus Christ. And so help us to understand, Lord, what is happening today, that we gather in your name to learn from you, to be equipped by you, so that we can proclaim you in the world around us. God, as we look to the first chapter of Malachi once again, would you open our understanding Would you give us what is needed to understand your word, to be able to apply it to our lives, and to be able to be changed as a result of our time here today? God, I pray none of us would leave in the same state we came in this morning, but that we would leave here encouraged, challenged, thinking more deeply about the things of the Lord, and would you come and be our teacher this morning? And I ask this in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Now, as we look back at Malachi 1, 2 through 5, which we looked at last Sunday, the main point that we dealt with is that God had chosen Jacob, that is Israel, to be the recipient of the promised blessing of Abraham. God had promised to Abraham that through him and through his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so within the terms of this covenant agreement, we read in Malachi 1 that God chose Jacob and his line to be the continuation of that, not Esau. And we saw why God does this as a result of his free and unconditional election. And he uses this as a demonstration to his people of how much he has loved them. The people ask God, how have you loved us? And God says, didn't I choose you? Out of all the people that I could have chosen, in the freeness of my grace and mercy, I have set my love upon you, not your brother, 
who by human standards was deserving. And so we, we dealt with all of this last week. And now here's the question that came up and that I was thinking about and I, I think we need to deal with. Let's say that you do an Ancestry.com kind of a test. Anyone ever done one of those? You don't have to raise your hand, it's fine, just wondering. Um, so you do this test and you find out where you came from, your lineage, your bloodline, and you find out that somewhere along the way, way in the back, you descended from the people who descended from Esau. Uh-oh. Now I thought what we just saw in this text last week, that God chose Jacob but rejected Esau quite permanently, if you remember, he calls the Edomites the people with which he is angry forever. So how do we reconcile these things? Is there any hope for someone who is descended from the line of Esau to be a recipient of the grace of God? That's a good question. And the Bible has a good answer. And so that's what I want to do this morning. Before we move on in the chapter, I want to deal with this question. And actually it becomes two questions. So here's the two questions if you're tracking along. One, does a person's ethnic background play any part in their ability to receive the grace of God? Second question, if God were to show favor and grace to someone from Esau's line, wouldn't that violate what he had just said in Malachi? Wouldn't that be talking out of both sides of his mouth? These are good questions. So I want to just briefly deal with these. We won't spend a ton of time on this, but I think it's worth going over so that we understand God's operations, His faithfulness, His consistency in dealing with His people. So let's deal with the first question. Does a person's ethnic background affect their ability to receive the grace of God? If someone finds out, okay, I'm from the line of these people who God said I rejected them, where does that leave you? Well, the answer in shorthand is no. A person's ethnic background, that, that means who you, what people group you belong to, that has no bearing now if you receive the grace of God or not. Let me give you two texts from Paul that make this point really clearly. First, Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says this, Ephesians 2.11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, here's the important phrase, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both. And by both he means Jew and Gentile, might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." The end of Galatians 3, Paul would say it this way. Galatians 3, 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. 
There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. So what is Paul teaching in those two passages? He's saying, I think quite clearly, that a person's ability to be justified before God, to become an heir of the promise God made to Abraham, has nothing to do with your ethnic background or standing. It does not matter what tribe or clan or nation you were born into. Now, in the family of God, there are Americans, Mongolians, Spaniards, Canadians, there are Jews and Greeks in the household of God. And Paul says this is because of Christ Jesus. He asks the question another way in Romans 4 when he says, is this blessing, now this blessing is referring to Abraham and the, the promise that was made to the people of God, is this blessing then only for the circumcised, for the Jews, or also for the uncircumcised? He's asking the same question. Can somebody who is outside of ethnic Israel receive the promise of Abraham? Can they become a recipient of the blessing that God had promised through him? And here's the answer to our question. Romans 10, 12. I'm just going to answer from the scriptures because if I say it, it's up for debate. If the scriptures say it, it's closed for debate. So here's what Paul says, Romans 10. For there's no distinction, this is verse 12. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So does a person's ethnic background merit or hinder the grace of God? No. Nope, the Bible is clear. It does not depend upon ethnicity. So now this brings us to the second question, doesn't it? If God shows grace and favor to someone who is outside the, the structure of ethnic Israel, let's say someone from Esau's line, is he being unfaithful to the covenant that he had established? Is he talking out of both sides of his mouth? And I think that we need to understand that we are dealing with covenant language, but also we are dealing with peoples, not just individuals. Okay, here's, here's where I want to make the point. In God's dealing with his people, we find out when we get to the New Testament that not all within Israel are true Israel. Do you know what that means? So let's say God makes a promise that through Abraham, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through his offspring. And we can trace that offspring down through Jacob and then the Davidic line and all the way to Christ in the New Testament, right? But in that people group, does that mean that simply because you were born into ethnic Israel that you are chosen? Here's what Paul says in Romans 9. Romans 9, 5, but it is not as if the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, so here's how he defends this, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. 
Here's what Paul is saying. And I know I'm opening a can that should probably remain shut for now, but I'm totally fine with that. Here's what Paul is saying. When we read in Malachi 1, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. We, we established this last week. What that means is that God is choosing Jacob's line to propagate, to continue the blessing that will eventually be a blessing to all the nations. And we know that that happened because Christ comes in the line of Abraham. Does that make sense? We read in the beginning of Matthew, when Matthew says this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of Joseph, son of David, son of Adam. He links this all the way back. So what we see in Malachi is that God is going to be a blessing to the nations, not through Esau's clan, but through Jacob's clan. And so if God now opens up and says, I'm going to bring people from every nation, every tribe, every people into this blessing, he is totally just. He does not violate the terms of his covenant. Because, as we see now, the cross of Christ expands the boundaries of the people of God. It is not only now just within this small people group, but now anyone, anyone, who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. And this is the main thing that I want to emphasize is that ethnic background, ethnic standing, neither merits nor prevents the grace of God. If it did, that would be works. If things were set up so that all you had to do was be born in the right place or follow these rules, or do these things, and then God would love you, that is a works-based theology, and it is death. Because no one can do enough. But rather, in his mercy and in his grace, God now blows open the doors on his people and says, come in. Jesus stands up during the feast and cries, anyone who is thirsty, come to me. Come and drink. And you'll find rest. So, my point in this, and we'll, we'll end here, I'm not going to keep dragging this out, is whether a person <clears throat> is under the curse because of sin, or because of being in the line of Esau, or because you are a Jewish person who could not perfectly keep the law, all of us are under a curse. But Christ became a curse for us, which upholds the terms of God's covenant. Let me read you one text and then we'll move on from here. I should have bookmarked this. Galatians 3, just a little bit earlier before the text I read just a moment ago. Let's see, Galatians, Ephesians, there we are. Listen to this and we'll, we'll stop here. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So, here's the good news for you. No matter where you were born, no matter who your parents were or were not, you are qualified through Christ to be an heir of the promise. And that's good news for us. 
So I wanted to deal with that because I didn't want there to be any doubt or any kind of a, well, wait a minute, it seems like God's doing things one way here and then one thing here. He is totally consistent in his dealings, but it comes down to what we do with Jesus. And Jesus is the one who qualifies us to be recipients of the blessing of God. So I'd love to talk about this more with you. If you want to talk about it, see me afterwards. We'll do that. There's a lot here that we didn't get to. So let's keep going. Open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 1. If you're not only there, and let's read verses 6 through 10. We'll see how far we get this morning. I don't think we'll get through this whole section, but I want to get as far as we can. So follow along. Malachi chapter 1, starting in verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of the Lord that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Now God in this section is issuing an indictment. It's an accusation primarily against the priests. The people are involved in this, but he's dealing first with the leaders. God is coming first and saying, you have failed. You have despised my name and what I have set up for your worship. And the priests, of course, should have known better. These are the spiritual shepherds in Israel. They are the ones who should have structured the worship rightly. They should have known what God required in his law. And they should have prevented people from bringing in substandard sacrifices. But they didn't. Their own hearts were wrong. Their own approach to God was wrong. And therefore, how they led the people was tainted. And we're going to get into that in the coming weeks. How the leadership affects the whole, the congregation. That's one of the things that God deals with in Malachi. So they didn't relate to God correctly. They had not followed his instruction, either in form or intent. And that's a really important thing to notice also. You notice God indicts what they were doing, right? Offering these, these bad sacrifices. But first, he says, primarily, it's a posture of their heart. You've despised me. So he's going after the internals here when he brings this indictment to the priests in Malachi 1.6. And I want to point out something that I mentioned last week is that when God deals with his people, there is always a demonstration of his grace, of his goodness, of his mercy and kindness before there is a demonstration or a requirement of what we have to do in response. <clears throat> There's always some kind of show of who God is, a revelation of what he has done before he says, okay, you need to clean it up, you need to walk this way, you need to do this. And in verses 2 through 5, God had just demonstrated to the people, look, I've loved you. 
I've chosen you, I've cared for you, I've preserved you. All the things that are wrapped up in that before he comes with this indictment. Grace precedes law. And this pattern is all over scripture and I want you to see that as we move forward here. Now to help the people better understand what exactly they were doing, God asks questions again. And he compares himself to a father and to a master. Look at verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? (coughs) If I am a master, (coughs) where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you. Now fatherhood, you might know this, was massively significant in the ancient Near East. It is, it is the foundation of the home and the family, but also of the economic situation. The father was the one who provided, who offered stability to the home and to the community. And the point that God is making here is that if you know how to respond to your earthly fathers, if you know that an earthly master is worthy of fear and respect, then how much more should the people of God have honored him as father and respected him as Lord, and he calls himself the Lord of hosts, which means he is the Lord of the angel armies. He he oversees all the hosts of heaven. So God reveals who he is to these people. This is an argument from lesser to greater. Okay, God is calling them out. He says, look, you've been taught, not only, remember the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother that it may go well with you and you live long in the land. They have been taught this since childhood. And yet when it comes to God, when it comes to the worship of God, there's some sort of disconnect. They're not putting the pieces together that if God is their father, They should honor him as such. If he is their master and Lord, then he deserves respect. But they had ignored those things. Now, to be fair, the understanding and the teaching of God as Father is far more developed in the New Testament than it is the Old Testament. But it's still there. God has adopted Israel in as his son. He has cared for them and provided for them. He has led them. He has taught them all things that a father does. And so what they're saying is, look, God is a father. God is a master. You know how to respond to these earthly offices. What is the big deal? Why are you neglecting to treat me even better than an earthly father or an earthly master? And notice, this indictment is directed at the priests specifically. We'll get to the people, but for now, God goes after the leaders, and he says that it is the priests who have despised his name. Now, name here is shorthand for all that God is. It's his character, it's his works, it's his reputation. So don't read this and assume that they just didn't want to call God Yahweh, or they had a problem calling him Jehovah. It doesn't have to do with the title It has to do with the fact that God's name represented his sovereign rule over the people. It represented who he was and what he had done and what he had promised to do, and yet the people despise it. And what had happened is that God God was not important to them anymore. He didn't excite them. The people's hearts were not stirred into affection for God any longer. They had become dull of hearing and slow of heart, just like Jesus said. And this is a problem. 
They had lost sight of his grandeur, his holiness, this this Isaiah 6 picture of God enthroned in splendor and smoke and holiness. They had lost it and they were treating God like a light thing. That doesn't matter. We'll just bring whatever we have for sacrifice. Nah, we don't have enough this month. Nah, it's fine. Just, just give that. It's fine. And the priests were allowing this to happen. So God levels this indictment against the people and says, you have despised my name. And this is the same word, despised, that is used in Genesis 25, talking about Esau, who despised his birthright. And no coincidence there. We've just dealt with Jacob and Esau a couple verses ago. Same word, same attitude. They were thinking of this as a small thing, right? Well, the God of all the universe... The Lord of hosts, their father, their master is no small thing. And the problem here is that the people had not approached God rightly. Now at the end of verse 6, they once again ask a question that just reveals where they're at. And in their ignorance and their sin, they did not recognize the damage they were doing by bringing these substandard sacrifices before the Lord of hosts. And it's interesting that this whole first section, if we look at verse 2 to, well, almost through verse 10, there's no instruction really given here. This is not a call to repentance as much as it is a divine finger in the people's chest saying, hey, you know better. I have instructed you as Father. I have taught you as Lord. Why do you despise my name? And the people say, how have we despised your name? They didn't get it. So God asks them questions, and they ask a question back. How have we despised your name? Now, before we see the answer, let me just say it once again. The Levitical priesthood, those who are overseeing temple worship, should have known the answer to this question. From childhood, they were raised to know the law of God, to memorize the law of God, to know the history of the people of Israel and to know it so well that they could teach the people. They knew what they were doing was wrong, I think. And of course, there's blindness, there's hardness, there's all these things that had clouded their vision, but deep down they knew that what they were bringing to the Lord in terms of their sacrifice was not acceptable, but they were too lazy to make a change. And they allowed it to happen. So listen to what the Lord says. How have you despised us? Verse 7, by offering polluted food upon my altar. The priests, on behalf of the people, were accepting sacrifices that were lame, blind, injured, old, overworked, Not the firstborn, but maybe the kind of runt of the litter that had come along. And the people were bringing these things in as a sacrifice to God and a public display of their love, and yet their hearts were totally cold. And they were totally hard to the ways of the Lord. Now, God had clearly prescribed for the people what they should do in the sacrifice. Now, I bring this up because I don't want us to think that, well, maybe they just didn't know. I mean, they had been in exile. They had been all through this, you know, really tough circumstances. Maybe they just forgot. Maybe God is being a little bit hard on them. No, God has been very clear with them as to what he expects. Deuteronomy 15. You can go there, just listen. I'll read a couple verses. Deuteronomy 15. All the firstborn males that are born of your herd and your flock, you shall dedicate to the Lord your God. 
You shall do no work with the firstborn of your herd, nor shall you firstborn of your flock. But if it has any blemish, if it is lame or blind or has any serious blemish whatsoever, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. So the clear teaching of the law from the beginning was you bring the best that you have to the Lord. If it's blemished, if it's lame, if it's not the firstborn, don't bring it. Now, why do you think this is? Why is God so concerned with the offering that the people are bringing to him? Why does he insist that the offering that they bring... Now, this is we're dealing with animal sacrifice here, but the same principle applies to burnt offering, drink offering, grain offering. Whatever the people brought, it had to be the best. Why is that? Because a, a pure unblemished, unstained firstborn represented the best of what the people had. It was the most valuable. If they take it to market, they get more money for that animal than they do for any of the other ones. Do you think that God is concerned with the pigment and coloration of the fur on a goat? Not so much. But what does that represent? God wants the best from his people. Does it matter if one of the goat's eyes is kind of sagged down like this or it walks with a gimp? That's not the point. The point is that the people were supposed to bring the best that they had, the most valuable thing that they had to the Lord their God. And in doing so, a number of things are happening. When they brought their best to the Lord, they are acknowledging in a very visible, demonstrable way that they trust God because in giving what was most valuable to them, they are saying, God, I trust you to provide for my needs. If I get rid of this, which would be a tremendous asset to my family, if I give this away, we trust you that you're going to provide. They are showing that by giving the best they have, they honor God. They love him. They treasure him more than the thing they hold most dear. So is it really about spots on the goat? Did the people just need to get better goats? No. No, they needed better hearts. They needed hearts that were inclined to the Lord. And the, and the visible and external things in worship, while they are important, they are only important to the degree that they represent the heart of the worshiper. So is it about goats? Well, kind of. But primarily it is about what are you bringing to God? When God says, you have despised my name, you guys understand what that word means, right? To think, to think less of something. To think ill of something. They didn't care. And God says, in doing this, you have despised my name. So, before we assume that the people just need different goats or different pigeons or whatever it was, we need to understand the reality of their hearts. That is what God is concerned with. He is concerned with not just what we bring, but how we bring it. He's concerned with the motivation. And you remember Jesus uh, with the Pharisees. He, he makes a similar indictment to them when he says, you do everything publicly because you want the attention. 
But that kind of sacrifice is every bit as worthless to God as the lame, the blemished, the crippled, the third-born sacrifice. So the externals matter. We're going to get into this in the coming weeks. But so much more than the externals, God is concerned with the posture of our heart. And this is what the people didn't get. So shame on the priests for allowing this to happen. And shame on the people who should have known better. But, as we're going to see, God will once again extend grace to them. Now we're going to stop here for this morning. Because as we get into verses 8, 9, and 10, there are some real implications for what the leadership of this worship are to do and how the people are to respond to that. And this translates over to what we do on a Sunday morning. Now, we don't have an altar. We are not sacrificing animals. If we ever start doing that, find a new church. But we don't do that. But what do we do? What are we doing here this morning? We are worshiping God. We are invoking his blessing upon us. We are singing his praise. We are coming before him as his people. We are acknowledging who he is and what he has done. All the same elements are in place. So I want to spend time on this next week. So we'll pick it up in verse 8 next week and we'll get a larger chunk. I promise we won't go this slow through the whole book. But I don't want to miss this. It is not worth blowing over. We need to understand what does God require of you right now? At Grace Bible Church? That's a really important question, and I want to deal with it biblically. So we will pick it up here next Sunday. Now I want to close with an exhortation just from these couple of verses that we've seen here, and it's something that I was convicted of this week as I'm looking at this and studying this, and so here's, here's the exhortation. We need, <clears throat> we need a right understanding. We need a right Look at God before we can look rightly at anything else. We need a right look at God before we can look rightly at anything else. Look at verse 6. You will notice that God reveals who he is in relation to his people right up front. Right? He is Father. He is Master. He is Lord of hosts. Each of these positions, each of these offices demands a certain response from the people. So before God ever gets in to saying, here's what you have to change, here's what you have to do, here's what I require of you, he reveals to them who he is. And that's significant because we need a right picture of who God is before we can think rightly about worship or conduct or attitudes, or anything else like that. God comes first. And this is why we do things the way we do them at Grace. We need to be shown who God is before we start worshiping, and before we start acting, and before we start thinking and doing. This is why we don't just start singing the moment you walk in the building. Josh calls us to worship. He reveals to us who God is through his word or through a creed or a confession or something like that because theology, knowing things about God, produces doxology, worship. We must have a right picture of who God is, that he is the creator of the ends of the earth. He is the one who chose us called us, redeemed us, loves us, provides for us. All the things that God is must be in the front and center of our mind before 
we start doing anything. This is so important, and this is what the people in Malachi had missed. They did not have a right picture of God. Therefore, everything else was skewed. Their worship was skewed. The sacrifice was skewed. Their hearts were skewed because they didn't have the right view of God, which is why God starts by saying, I'm your father. I'm your master. I'm the one who chose you. We must have a right view of God before we can view anything else rightly. And I am so jealous, maybe is the right word, that we get this as a church. It will not do any of us any good if we just fake it. If you come into church on a Sunday morning not having your heart prepared, not thinking of the Lord, just totally distracted by the things that are going on in your life, you will not see him for who he is. So I want to encourage you, as, as we go through Malachi and, and all the time, be intentional about preparing your heart to meet with God on a Sunday morning. Get a right view of who God is. Read his word. Listen to worship music on your way in. Whatever you have to do, prepare your heart because that is what God is after. It doesn't matter if you raise your hands or if you sit down. or if you, The externals are there, we'll deal with those. But what God is after is your heart and how you approach him and why you approach him. We have to have a right view of who God is before we can really view anything else correctly. So, this is going to be good. Aren't you excited to get into the rest of this? This is just, I, I, I almost don't like taking these short chunks because I just want to keep going and get in. And so, Lord willing, we will do this next Sunday. So would you pray with me as we come to the table and we will move on. Father, we are thankful uh, that you have instituted things the way that you have. How strange it would be if you just left us to ourselves and and had no requirement for us and no standard for us, so just up to ourselves. But thank you that you have not left us that way, that you have revealed who you are in your word and that you have revealed to us your standard. And I pray, God, that you would help us to see we cannot meet your standard. We cannot please you on our own. We must have your spirit working within us. So as we go through this book of Malachi, Lord, and we see how your people in the past have, have missed the point, how they have had wrong motivations, Lord, we are reminded that we often miss the point and, and we often have wrong motives when we come to worship you. And so please correct our thinking. God, teach us from your word that we would understand what you desire from us and that we would commit ourselves to having a right view of who you are so that we can worship you in spirit and in truth, in faithfulness and in righteousness. God, you are worthy to be praised with our every thought and deed. And O oh, great God of highest heaven, would you glorify your name through us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.